All right, in our young adult group on Wednesday nights, we're studying what it really means to follow Jesus. What does it mean to apprentice ourselves under Jesus? Because what we realize is that when we come to faith in Jesus, it doesn't stop there, right? When we've been saying when grace goes in, it always flows out. And so we chose that path because there seems to be a crisis of faith in the church, in the culture. Uh, in the book we're studying that John Mark Comer wrote called Practicing the Way, he gives these two amazing stats. 63% of Americans still identify as Christians. That was wild to me. 63%. And if you ask People, if they pray or not, it goes even higher. It gets up into the 90s, I believe. And yet, based on as good of research as you can do, which is difficult when it comes to following Jesus, and what is that, you know, how do you measure that? But best estimates are that out of those 63% in that research study, only 4% are practicing Christians. How does that happen? Right? Think about it. And, and we could unpack that in a lot of different ways. And, and I don't say that to just get you to feel down on Christianity. But a lot like Paul in Romans 1, 2, and 3, we have to accept reality before we move past into the goodness of what God is doing. John Mark Comer goes on in his book to say one reason, or when he was commenting to an interviewer about his book, said one reason that maybe this is happening is simply a misunderstanding of the gospel since at least around World War II, if not way before it. In North America and far beyond, the gospel has been preached in such a way that you could become a Christian without becoming an apprentice of Jesus. But what I want you to consider as we get ready to dive into this final word of diagnosis in Romans 3 is the invitation that Jesus made to us. It's the same one that he made to his disciples some 2,000 years ago. He said, follow me. Follow me. Dallas Willard used to say, if people do not hear your presentation of the gospel and naturally ask the follow-up question, how do I do that under Jesus? Then whatever we are preaching is not the same gospel that Jesus preached. And then Willard went on to say this, and I want you to really let this hit your heart. Because those statements aren't ones without hope, and I want you to know that. Because here's what his follow-up statement was after saying that. There is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. Think about that. There is no problem in your life, in our lives, that apprenticeship to Jesus, that following Jesus cannot solve. Now listen, that doesn't mean it will get easy. That doesn't mean you'll get whatever you want outside of His will. But what it does mean 
is that following Jesus will solve those problems in your life. All of that is so important to the vision of your life that when you step into your every day, what is the vision of your life? What What is true reality for you? Because without intentionality, we will be quick to build our kingdom and not His. It's really, really easy to do. And so as we come back to Paul's letter to the Romans, we need that in view, that there's a, there's a grand arc to the story of the Bible. There's a grand arc to the story of Jesus. There's a grand arc to the renewal of all things. And all of that matters when you read Romans 1, 2, and 3. And I keep harping on this every week. Because Romans 1, 2, and 3 is not without the rest of the book. And so... You have to keep in view that Romans 8 is coming. Amen. And so if you're new to the Bible or you're new to Christianity, what what we really hang so much of our faith on is what we're going to get to in this letter called Romans. And so be encouraged by that. But I do want to dive into Romans 3 uh, if for a few minutes and we'll we'll probably have to come back to some of it next week. But. By this point in the letter, in the sermon that Paul is writing and preaching, he has sufficiently diagnosed everyone as guilty. Chapter 1, the willfully ignorant. Chapter 2, the self-righteous. The end of chapter 2, the super-religious. And we come to the beginning of chapter 3, and he, through answering four different questions, it's almost as though he could Hear his reader objecting. He's going to answer these four questions hypothetically about the rebuttals he could receive. And he does it essentially in the form of four questions. And I want to look at those four questions before we turn that corner. Because one through eight is the final diagnosis. And then the middle section of this chapter is going to Describe the human condition as a result of that diagnosis. And then the end of chapter three, we start to make that turn towards deliverance. So let's, let's dive into it. Let me just read the first eight verses to you and then we'll see how far we get this morning. The Bible says this in Romans chapter three, verse one, then what advantage has the Jew? This is all in view of what happened last week. What advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God or the scriptures. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true Though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie... 
God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil things that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. And then here's his final diagnosis. Their condemnation is just. It's a powerful statement. It's answering some objections here. And maybe like me, you found yourself reading some of that going. Yeah, I mean, good question. (laughs) Good question. For sake of time, let's run through those four questions briefly the first question that's asked in verse one and two is a racial question the the question of being a jew does being a jewish man or woman get us anything extra because for many many years the belief was that it did and honestly when you look at the abrahamic covenant that blessing god told abraham would come through his line his family But then notice this, it says what? To all people of the earth. Critically important, right? Because if you read that wrong, you might think that it was just coming to the Jews. But the Jews were the conduit in which God's grace would come ultimately through Jesus. And his life, death and resurrection, bringing new life. And so literally when we baptize people here at Redeemer City Church... We put them underwater and we say, raise to walk in a new way of life. All through that promise, thousands and thousands of years ago. What an awesome thing. We don't have time to unpack how circumcision and all that goes into it, but the Bible project is there for you. Check it out. What advantage has the Jew? Listen, if God's promises to Abraham and his descendants doesn't give them righteousness, then what's the point? What Paul explains is that God's covenant doesn't give anyone exemption from judgment. The point is that at the feet of the cross, we're all equal. We're all on level playing field. Scripture says in verse 9 and 10, which we'll get to in a minute, that there's nobody righteous, not even one. We go back to Old Testament stories, right, with Sodom and Gomorrah. God, if there's just 10 people, (laughs) spare it, deal. Okay, if there's just one, (laughs) spare it, deal. And then even as Lot and his wife are running away, what's the story? She turns back. And there's judgment. These are difficult things, right? But we talked about last week that what God hates is evil. And it's only in his nature to be against evil. And we actually are grateful for that. Because when we look around, I need to know that somebody's in charge. And that at some point in eternity, which I can't wrap my head around, he's going to make things right. And he's doing that. That plan is in process. And some of you have experienced that. You are experiencing that in your life, even in a small way, if not a global way. Right? There's things that aren't right. Life and beauty missing in this area or that area or that diagnosis or that family member. Whatever it may be. It is, however, for the Jews' perspective... 
And for those of us who are in Christ and are now, as Paul tells his friends in Corinth that we've been talking about, if we're his ambassadors and God's making his appeal through us, just like the Jewish people in the Old Testament, we have, as Chuck Swindoll would call it, an unequaled privilege. Wow, that God would want to use me at all is fascinating. Praise God. And so when, when you hear us call you to serve or call you to go out into the community or call you to take a card home, a kingdom card, and write seven or eight names down and pray for those people that you might share the gospel with them, this is why. What an unequaled privilege that we could bring. Paul's going to say later in Romans, how beautiful are the feet that bring what? Come on. Good news. The gospel. It's amazing. The whole world through them, through us, would receive God's invitation to receive his amazing grace. We sing, be thou my vision. That's the vision, the renewal of all things. We're not just aimlessly singing, right? We're declaring something. God, would you be my vision? Would you get my eyes off of me and out on to help me look with you at the world? Man. Number two, there was a question of divine faithfulness, right? Did you hear that? Does my faithlessness cause a problem for God's faithfulness? Verse three and four. Does humanity's unbelief nullify God's faithfulness? Does the Jewish people's unbelief prevent God's rescue plan for humanity from moving forward? Quite the opposite. God's kingdom is coming on earth and nothing can stop it. What did Jesus say? I will lay my down, my life down and then I will raise it back up on the third day. Come on, somebody. If that doesn't get you fired up. God's plan is not thwarted by human unbelief. It is a tragedy to be sure. But it does not thwart his plan. He has kept his promises for thousands of years and he is still keeping them. And in this sense, God's light is all the brighter in the brokenness and darkness and evil of this world. I I couldn't help but think about Psalm 51 here. Psalm 51, 4 is appropriate here. It's where David writes these words against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. God is faithful even when we are not. And the beauty of that and why David could write that, you know, he goes on. That's, that psalm is beautiful. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit in me. Why could he confess his sin on that level and that judgment but then turn and praise his God? Because his God is gracious and good and kind, not willing that anyone should perish, but all would come to eternal life through Christ. They're always commingled, right? That though he is just, he is also good. And I'm getting ahead of myself because that's at the end. Number three, there's a confusion about righteousness here. The question of confused righteousness in verse five and six Does God's creation of people and the creation of his law, knowing we would fail it, make God's wrath unjustified? 
Paul explained this in detail later, but God's creation of the law did not make humanity guilty of wrongdoing. We were already wrong. <laughs> we had already walked from his plan. What Paul's going to say here is that the, the law of God simply exposes us. The law of God is a mirror by which we see where we are. God didn't arbitrarily put a target in the universe somewhere in the sky and we had already taken a shot somewhere else. He didn't have a gotcha moment for us. The target was present from creation, was it not? The Lord God put man and woman in the garden and said, I want to live with you and do life with you and Don't touch this one tree. And what did we do? We had to touch the tree. (laughs) But think about this. Think about this. The serpent was already in the garden. Wasn't it? When she grabbed the fruit, when Eve grabbed the fruit, and then Adam gladly took the fruit, the serpent was already there tempting There was already that piece of the puzzle there. The target was present. God's law, as we'll see in a minute, just simply illuminates where we are. There's nothing confused about the righteousness of God. He is holy. He is just. And so that naturally went into the fourth question in verse 7 and 8. If God's grace is highlighted in our weakness, then what's the big deal with sin? Why not sin more since God is so good? As one author wrote, and this was really helpful to me, that's bizarre thinking. And yet it's not too far off from our, from our experience, right? That we would just keep like a dog returning to its vomit, scripture says, right? Coming back to our sin over and over and over again. I know that's been my experience. Is it not? Paul will say it in Romans 7 as he laments his condition and then celebrates God's goodness. But it is a twisted logic. How often do we choose our sin and destructive patterns? Think about this. One commentator wrote this and I think it's poignant for us. He said... He said this tongue in cheek, right? Well, house fires give firefighters the uh, opportunity to show how courageous they are. So let's light more house fires, right? Like we wouldn't do that, right? Because it doesn't have in mind any victim that would be a result of those house fires, right? We, We wouldn't do that. It doesn't make sense. And in the same way, because God is so good is not a free license to sin, As a matter of fact, when you recognize, and I think this is why Paul's building this case for the first uh, beginning of this book, is that when we recognize just how bad it is, we can see clearly just how good he is. Critically important. And then, finally, Paul gives that final indictment, right? That final diagnosis. At the end of verse 8, their condemnation is just. And we have to sit with that. We have to sit with that. It's not an easy 
diagnosis, but it's a diagnosis none the same. And so in verse 9, and we'll keep going here because we need to, we need to get to some good news. Maybe very appropriate, Paul in verse 9 says, what then? Right? What then? What then? And here's his, here's his examination of the human condition. If our condemnation is just because of our sin, where is, where do we find ourselves? What then? Are, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have to listen to these words. No one, none, all. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. It gets worse. (laughs) Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is in their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Does this sound like any place that we live? And then, and then here's the condition, this statement right in the middle of it. Do, doing it your way, your religious way, your unreligious way, whatever way that is, in, that is void of Christ, listen to this, in that path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Mm. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now... We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And then here's why I called it a mirror. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul just told us why he built that whole case. Because through that diagnosis comes the knowledge of our sin. And we need that. But it's so important for us. Because as he turns this corner, and we're going to take communion here in a second, just as a celebration of God's grace. We have to see that. We have to see our sin. You need to look at your own life. And see your sin. Because the rest of it won't taste as good. If this doesn't taste as bad. Verse 21. But. What an important word. Come on you English teachers. You know what I'm talking about. That's important. All that was said. But, praise God, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, here's good news, apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, look at this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is... Deliverance. That things could be that bad, that sin is that evil, 
But God is that good. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace. This next section is loaded with theological terms. Alright. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation By his blood to be received by faith. When we take communion in a minute, we're celebrating all of this goodness that came through Jesus. Listen to this. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance. Listen to this. He had this is going to give you Old Testament vibes right here. You should notice it. He had passed over former sins that remind you of a Bible story. Yeah, the Passover lamb. Right comes from that Old Testament story where God passed over the places that had blood on the doorposts. Wow. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might listen to this. What a statement. Just circle this in your Bible. That he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See. How does God reconcile evil and judgment with goodness and rescue and redemption? Because God is both just and he always will be, but he is also justifier. That though diagnosis comes through his law, salvation comes through his son. Praise God. There's a lot more there, by the way, that we will maybe take next week to unpack some of those faith and truth weighty statements. But let's just get through the end of this and come to the table together to just sit in the glory and goodness of God. Because look at this next statement. So all that for the one who has faith in Jesus, all that deliverance, all that righteousness, all that goodness I love this statement in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? Why, why do we need it to know that it's that bad and he's that good? Because it changes the conversation in your heart. It changes what's happening in your soul. And then it changes what happens in our collective body. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith. So now he's tying back to chapter 1. Remember, the just shall live by what? Faith. What does that look like when you're such a terrible human? (laughs) Jesus. Amen. Alright. So we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Praise God. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. I love this idea that grace is not opposed to effort. 
Young adults, we're going to remember this from our conversation. What's it opposed to? Earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. The law is good in the place that God intended it to sit. Martin Luther used to call it the hammer of God. (laughs) It doesn't feel good. (laughs) But it does make his grace so sweet. So we don't overthrow the law, we look into the law. Paul's going to call it in another letter, the perfect law of liberty. Freedom comes from knowing where you are and who you are and how to be set free. Right? When Jesus came to earth in Luke chapter 4, it said, he said, I've come to set the captive free. Right? That, that means we have to know that we're captive. You have to know that you're in slavery to be set free. God is so good and his faithfulness endures. And so as we think about that as we come to the communion table, it resets our expectations of what's happening. Right? When, when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and you hear these words that Jesus said, he said, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? We're joining Him. It all ties together. All of it. Our relationships with Him, with each other. Because why? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. What did Paul say in Romans? God is one. It's all converges in the person That is Jesus Christ. He is both the just and the justifier. He's inviting you to participate with him in his body and his blood and his grace. That's why you get to chapter 11 and Paul can say we need to examine ourselves. Like what, what is the heart that we bring to the table? I just want to invite you to do that in this moment. Right when Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. A little bit of party culture had surrounded communion in that church in Corinth took the celebrating God's grace a little too far. And so Paul just invites them back, right? Invites them back to consider and to examine just how evil sin is and how amazing grace is. So I want that to be on your heart and your mind as we come to the table. So I'm going to have the, the band come up and they're going to play over us. And then in just a minute we'll take these elements together. But I want to invite you to stand. The way we're going to do it is the way we, we normally do it. We just get the blood flow moving. You can come forward and there's elements on each side. Just take that and go back to your seat. And then I just invite you to pray. 
Just take some moments to examine yourself, to pray, to consider what the Lord has done for you. If there are wrongs that need to be made right, now's a great time to send that text or put your arm around that person or come kneel at the altar symbolically to pray in the presence of God and his people. Because we say this a lot, we don't have, we're not here to mess around, we're not here to play games, we're not here to be fake. That we all, at the foot of Jesus, need his grace. And he's offering it this morning. So I want to invite you now to just come forward while the band plays and grab those elements and then go back to your seat. Come on, you can come forward.